Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Running On Emotion. I'm Alistair Eakin, and I've been speaking to some of the biggest names in British sport. It's a podcast about the role of emotion in sport, from pride to fear, from anger to joy, and all stops in between. In this episode, we're taking an in-depth look at the happy side of elite sport, the one emotion all athletes work towards and dream about, really the reason most of them are involved in the first place. We're talking about joy. It can be found in numerous places, in relationships, shared experiences, even in hardship, but perhaps most obviously in success. Winning invariably brings joy, but the depth of that emotion is almost always measured by the winding journey to the trophy, to the podium. In many cases, the tougher the pathway, the more intense the joy. Everyone has their story, and if this series has taught me anything, it's that elite success is always, always earned the hard way. My guest has experienced more sporting joy than most. A phenomenally talented, driven man, he earned his joy in the toughest of circumstances, becoming a household name in the glorious British summer of 2012. He was born with a spinal cord transection, meaning he has no movement in the lower half of his body. And through a combination of God-given talent and unbending will, and ultimately a laser focus, he rose through the sporting ranks to win no fewer than six Paralympic gold medals as a wheelchair racer to go with his two silvers and two bronze. And he's won the London Marathon a stunning eight times. I'm thrilled he's agreed to talk to me today. It is the werewolf himself, David Weir. Dave, thank you so much for being here. Oh, I hear you have another nickname or two. Yeah, I've had a few down the line. I was brought up on a council estate, so... You know, everyone had nicknames on the estate, so obviously my one was Wills, so my friends still call me Wills, which is quite obvious, but, <laughs> you know, I think it was just a simple thing for them. And then even my partner I met nearly two years ago now, and then her phone was Moody Dave, so... Moody Dave. Okay, so I've got Moody Dave to talk about joy. Yeah, even, um, <laughs> I think, is it Gareth A. Davis uh, gave me that name as well, says, yeah, he might be Moody, but... He gets the job done and stuff like that. So uh, I'm quite a happy guy, I think, sometimes. Well, I'm hoping we will discover that through the course of this conversation. And anyway, moodiness is, is it's an emotion, isn't it? And we're here to talk about emotions. And of course, you cannot possibly experience the one without the other. I think it's because I'm always in, in focus or I'm in training mode that you're always thinking of your goal. So I might look moody, but I'm actually concentrating on my next goal to, to succeed, I think, sometimes. Yeah, that sounds perfectly reasonable. Your career obviously has been unbelievable, so inspirational on so many different levels. Dave, would I be right in saying that you feel joyful? I hope I'd be right in saying you feel joyful when you reflect on what you've achieved to this point. Yeah, I, I don't sit there and count all my medals and praise myself that what I've done over my my career, I'm probably one of the greatest middle distance athletes that Britain has ever produced. But I still don't think we get the recognition for what, what I've done. So that gives me a bit of sadness because I, I feel like as a disabled athlete, we haven't had the 
publicity, maybe the coverage of of what I've, we've done. I see myself as uh, higher uh, uh, than than Mo Farah, but I don't keep my medals out. I don't, you know, they're still in the bag. Um, my missus has, has said we need to stick some of these medals up, and I don't have pictures up of of my racing career. But she's just put a few up in the boys' room when they come down, so that my boys look at them and. I remember being at a European Championships, I think it was, or World Championships in Assen in Holland. And um, I think it was my first ever sort of world stage medal. And the guy that was giving me my medal, he said, you need to smile, you've just won a gold medal. And I said to him, I can't because I've got another race in a couple of hours. Same in 2012, I would look at my medal, absolutely ecstatic and overjoyed and I can't explain how I, I was feeling but I'd sit in my room and stare at it but I'd have to pull it in a drawer and forget about it because I had so many other races and uh, so it, it is tough as an athlete if you're doing multiple events because you can't sit there and enjoy your success straight away. Maybe that will come. Maybe. Sometimes <laughs> I sit there and try and pat myself on the back, but... It doesn't come easily. It doesn't come easily. And when people say you're the greatest or this and that, I, I, yeah, I'm just quite a modest guy that just enjoys what I do. And I sort of do one race and then move on to the next one, if that makes sense. Well, maybe, you know, down the track, you'll get the opportunity. Perhaps when you've, when you've given up the racing for good, you perhaps might get that opportunity potentially. But um, we're obviously here to talk about joy, but I think it's so important that we give people a context really to exactly how you scaled the heights. So can we start with the blindingly obvious? You have no movement in the lower half of your body and you were the result by the sounds of things of a very, very traumatic birth. Yeah, um, I think it was more traumatic for, for my mother. She didn't know I was disabled at the time. So it was, um, I think it was quite tough for her to, you know, there was these complications at birth and I had to take her in for emergency uh, cesarean. And the doctors literally said, she, my mum nearly died actually. So she was very lucky to, I was her fourth child and lost one, I think. I think it scared her. That was enough. Uh, that was enough for her. Um, but I was folded in half, she said. So my legs were propped up to my chest. They didn't realise that I had a spinal injury. They thought I just had club feet. And they pretty much said, yeah, he's fine, he's healthy, he's a healthy lad. And they pretty much did a few tests, turned my feet around, put me in plasters, and pretty much once my mum was fit enough to go home, they said, there's nothing else. He, he, he should walk, but he'll have a bit of a limp and he'll be fine. So my mum was, was okay with that. So she took me home. and She kept doing these little tests on my feet and stuff like that. She realised that I could feel, but there was no movement. So she thought the plasters were too tight or something was restricting my feet. And am I right in saying that's very rare, that you have no movement, but you also have feeling? I've got feeling everywhere. So, yeah, it, it's very rare. It, it baffled them. So obviously she took me back and they realised, they took the plasters off and obviously done like the prick test and stuff like that and realised that I've actually got feeling, but no movement and... For years, they didn't believe my mum or didn't believe me that I could actually feel. They thought it was like a like fake feel sort of feeling. You know, sometimes amputees get it, don't they? If, if So they thought it was something like that. And they said he'll never crawl. He'll drag his legs behind him. So she went up to the hospital and said, you know, you said he wouldn't crawl. He can crawl like a baby. And they were like, no, he can't. No, he can't. So she put me on the floor and I was crawling. So I was using my hips and my knees to crawl. 
They were like, well, we wasn't expecting that. So, you know, they were to send me back. So those early years, quite obviously, incredibly challenging. You spent years in calipers, didn't you? Yeah. You endured terrible abuse at times from other kids. How would you describe the emotional side of your childhood, your school years? It's only till you get older you realise uh, how troubled you was as a kid. And actually, a few years ago, when I had severe depression, that it was only my counsellor that really went back to my childhood and said, you've had depression since day one. I couldn't deal with my disability as a child. I wasn't getting abused on, on the estate because everyone knew me. So they knew I was David and Calipers. I had friends and it was a great estate to grow up on because no one was treated different. It didn't matter where you come from. And as long as you made everyone laugh and had fun, it, you know, you, you could be black, you could be slightly different. It, it, it didn't matter. It was a different estate to any other estate that I sort of went on. Everyone was welcome. That, that's what I loved about the estate. It was called Roundshaw and it's still there now. My mum still lives up there and my children are still up there now. It was more when I went off the estate that I felt the abuse, you know, just you're a spastic and, and, and bad words like that. And it's only till you're older that you think, how did I put up with all that as a, as a youngster? And I, and I didn't because there was times where probably every night where I would cry myself to sleep asking, well, I don't believe in God and, and stuff like that, but I was always asking, why me? Why did you pick me? Why? I want to play football. I want to ride a bike. I want to be like everyone else on the estate. I don't want to be stuck in goal. <laughs> I want to be a centre forward. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, I want to ride a bike. I want to do jumps. And I had my own bikes and stuff like that, but I just wanted to be like everyone else. And my friends say, we, we've never treated you any different. I said, yeah, but I always felt different. And going to a disabled school, I felt different there as well. I didn't feel the same because I didn't feel disabled. But then when I went back to the estate, I felt disabled. It was, it was very confusing as a young lad to really feel accepted. And I begged my mum if I could go to a mainstream school as I was getting older because I just didn't feel nothing against the school because the school was great. But for me, mentally, I, I just I dread school every day. I, as soon as I got there at nine o'clock, I was looking for three o'clock. It was just painful, to be honest, and nothing against the teachers because they loved me because of who I was and what I was doing in, in sport at a young age as well. I probably wouldn't have learned better from <laughs> mainstream school, but it was just feeling normal, I suppose. But back then, you wasn't allowed to go to a mainstream school. And how did you handle the abuse? What did you do by way of response? Did you just sit there and soak it up, or uh, did you respond? Sometimes I would respond. Sometimes you had to respond to protect yourself because if you went and cried and sort of ran away from the abuse it would carry on so I sort of stuck up for myself probably got bashed up a lot to be honest because I couldn't fight my own way out of the battle and the thing is I've got older brothers that you know were all boxers so and I wouldn't go and tell them because I didn't want that I didn't want you didn't want them fighting your battles yeah because then then it would be, oh, your brothers are coming and stuck up for you. I didn't want that. I had to stick up for myself. Obviously, I had my friends as well, but most of the time you had to fight your own battles. And sport, therefore, a salvation for yeah. you? I mean, a vital outlet at the very least at that point. Yeah, definitely. I think as a youngster growing up, you're seeing all your mates playing in Little League and playing football on a Sunday or a Saturday. They had stories, you know, the, the stories were 
what goals they scored or did you see that pass or did you see it? We won 5-0 or whatever. I didn't have a story and I love sport. You know, I've been brought up with boxing and wanted to do boxing. Obviously, that would have been probably one of the sports I went into or, or football or something like that. Wheelchair basketball was probably the only sport I really knew about. I didn't really know about wheelchair athletics back then and that's what I wanted to do. And at that stage, did you know that you were athletically gifted? Not really. I just knew that I had that drive and that that willpower to do well in something. And I knew sport was probably the only way that I could make myself happy. My school I went to in Kingston called Beedlesford, they said, oh, we've got trials for the London Mini Marathon. I was like, what's that? And they said, um, it's just a, a race on the day of the London Marathon. The only thing is you're eight. You've got to be 11. I said, don't worry about that. So I took the leaflet. I said to my parents, I want to do this, but you're not old enough. I said, who's going to know? Okay, let's do it. So they just done it. So we turned up, we had to do two miles or something in a a really heavy NHS day chair and I qualified. I said, well, what's next? They said, well, you're racing on the day. I said, what, the London Marathon day? I was like, yeah. I was like, oh, I can't wait for that. So did a lot of training up and down on the estate where it was a bit smooth and where I could and... I think it was just over two miles to the last bit of the London Marathon and I just got the bug straight away. And you remember that feeling when you were achieving something of meaning? Yeah, just the hair standing up and and, and my dad praising me and my mum and everyone around me and like I just felt like I maybe I can do something now, maybe this is the sport. And then watching the marathon and it was the only time we used to see wheelchair athletes or people in wheelchairs on TV. Might have been the start and the end, but seeing the greats like Chris Hallam, Dave Holding, uh, some of the foreigners that used to come over the Canadian races and, and winning in wheelchairs, I was like, this is something that I really want to do. After that, it was the London Youth Games. It was mixed with the same day as Able Bodied. So a bit like the Commonwealth Games where they've got Paralympic events. Running concurrently. Yeah, running together. And that mattered to you? Yeah. Because you had crowd and you had, you know, it was at Crystal Palace. It was in a massive stadium. It was only 100 metres. I didn't do that well on it, I don't think, because everyone had these fantastic-looking sports chairs and I had this big, I think it was called Rempoi Roller wheelchair. And the only thing I remember that made me happy, I met Tessa Sanderson afterwards. And my mum somewhere's got a big, big picture. And that's when I met my coach, Jenny, for the first time. Dave, you were picked to compete for Britain in Atlanta in 1996, the Olympics, a huge moment. You were 17. I mean, what was that like telling your family, not the experience itself, we'll talk about that in a moment, but telling your family you'd been selected? I mean, that must have been amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, it it was. was, I think I just finished my GCSEs and I didn't think I did that very well, but (laughs) I didn't really care because I, I knew... I had a good chance because I'd done the qualifying for, for the 100 metres and I think the 400 metres at the time and the 200, but they didn't pick me for the two. And I got a phone call on my birthday. I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't really talk down the phone because everything I dreamt about had, had come true. I was... Pure joy. Pure joy. But I'd, I'd come back from a race and my mum's like, how'd you do today? I go, all right. 
so it, like after that phone call, even though inside I was like bubbling, I couldn't wait to get on that plane. I couldn't wait to get and meet the squad, go and get your kit and be with the greats like Chris Hallam and looked up to him and loved him to bits. When I got off the phone call, mum was like, well, what, what was that? What was that? I said, oh, I've been selected to go to Atlanta. And then obviously she gave me a big cuddle on that. She said, are you happy? I was like, yeah, I am happy, but I just didn't show emotion when I was younger. I just... Do you not think you, you knew how? I don't think I did, no. Like, every time we used to go away for racing with, with my dad up and down the country, how'd you do today? Are you all right? And you'd have won it? I would have won everything, yeah. Absolutely every race. The juniors couldn't even cope with me. They had to put me in the seniors because I just smashed the life out of them. And it was just... You had to learn how to enjoy it. Enjoy it, yeah. Yeah, to really learn. So Atlanta, in the end, turned out to be a lousy experience, didn't it, for you? Tell me why that was. All the hype. I remember going to Pensacola for the training camp, which was amazing because I was with the greats like Chris Hallam and Dave Holding and learning off them and training and Tanny Gray and people like that. And that was an amazing experience. Couldn't wait to get there. And then getting on the coach and going to Atlanta itself and going to the village and you're thinking this massive wow factor. Because I watched the Olympics before I went. It blew my mind. You know, I'm going to be on the same track as um, Michael Johnson. Absolutely smashing it. The crowds look amazing. And then I saw the accommodation. I thought, this is... But as a kid, you just don't care at the time because you're just there to race, so... But mechanically, I mean, they barely had enough room for you to even put your chair in the no, room. No, we couldn't. I was sharing with Dave Holding. We had two single beds and a wardrobe that was in the way all the time. And literally, one of us could only get our chair in because the gap between the beds was minute. I couldn't even get my chair, and I've got a little chair. And Dave was small as well, so one of us had to crawl into our chair to get out or whatever, vice versa. And then... It was just things like the food hall. There was flies everywhere and it was just slop. It wasn't nutritionist. It was just like, well, is this the Paralympics then? And they hadn't marketed the no, Paralympics no, at all, there was No, the opening ceremony was great. It was packed. I thought, oh, this is, this is going to be good. But I think the people just wanted to go and see the acts, not the athletes, the people that were on stage. And then turning up for races, it was pretty much dire. There was probably 20 people. 20 people in I a massive so. Olympic stadium. Yeah. <laughs> Afterwards, you, you just reflect and think, all my childhood, I've, I've dreamt of this day, and it was dire, really. I couldn't wait to get home. I'd done all right. I made a final in 100 metres. I didn't expect to win a medal. I didn't expect to even make a final because, you know, I was 17 years old. That was probably the best bit, just making a final, but I just had enough after that, I think. Giant letdown yeah. for you. And and that experience led to some dark places, didn't it, for you? Yeah. Are you happy to talk about those? Yeah, that, I felt like I lost my teenage years and I wanted to be normal and not think about sport. I dedicated my life from eight years old to get to this Paralympics and I didn't think the Paralympics would ever be as good as the Olympics. So I just, I lost interest. A year later, there was a World Championships in Birmingham. I was selected, I didn't even turn up. In my head, at the time, I wasn't even training. I really didn't give two monkeys about it. And your head was in a very different space, wasn't yeah. it? You disappeared into the, the rave scene. 
yeah, and, went and everything the, that came with it, seemingly. Yeah, went into the rave scene, enjoyed pretty much four years of doing what I wanted to do, but didn't have no career, which and my mates were jumping on building sites and getting a few bob here and there, and I weren't, you know, I couldn't do that. I tried to get a few jobs. Just let down, you know, it was all about... <sighs> disability again it was just you know they take one look at you and just say no and that was just degrading and so I just gave up with trying to get a job so I you know I had to live off benefits and whatever the government could give me at the time and it was quite tough times to be honest because I didn't know what avenue to go down. Would it be fair to say that you were maybe searching for some kind of joy but in the wrong places? Yeah I felt like I was enjoying myself when I was going out raving and stuff like that but deep down I was you know a manic depressant that just wanted to feel normal in life I suppose or do something that I'm really good at and it was only till I met my eldest daughter's mum and she said what are you going to do with your life what do you want to do and I said the only thing I was good at was wheelchair racing and she said why don't you do it again I said because I've upset too many people I felt like i let down myself, my family. You know, my mum and dad, I, didn't, I was talking to them, but they just felt like I'd, I'd been wasting my life. And I really had to sort myself out first. So I did the London Marathon that year for the first time ever. And that was the moment, really, wasn't it? A kind of spark. The, the, the just... ultimate low, would you say? I mean, you, you know, without beating around the bush, you put it uh, out in your book, you know, there were drugs involved during yeah. that period for you. You were in a very in a very dark place, weren't you, that you started smoking, you gained yeah. weight, and yeah. then in conjunction with meeting your girlfriend, one of your mates had a fit whilst watching telly off the back of yeah. too many drugs. Yeah. And that, again, was a, something of a moment. Yeah, it was a, a massive wake-up call for me because it was just, am I going to die? Who's next? What's next? Can my body cope with this? It was more my mind, you know? I started getting paranoid and things like that, and... Yeah, smoking and drinking, and and it was just a a spiral every week because you you you'd say, "Well, I'm not doing it no more," but then you just fall into that trap again, and it was just one thing after another, and it kept going on and on and on and on. Um, and I think the only release that I could get was focusing on something that made me feel good. Maybe this is the moment we talk about Jenny, who is and remains presumably an incredibly important person in your life, Jenny Archer, your longtime confidant and coach. I mean, she's brought a lot of joy into your life, has she not? And, and an awful lot more besides. What is it about Jenny? She's just got everything about her that, that makes you feel good. You know, if you talk to ex-football players that have worked with her, they only praise highly of her or what she does for man-to-man you know, putting an arm around you and saying the right things at the right time. She's not just my coach, she's my bloody counsellor sometimes or she's my physio sometimes, you know. She's someone to pick up the phone when she's just a friend, you know, nothing to do with sport. She just wants to see people succeed in their lives in whatever you want to do. And that's what she does. She tries to get the best out of them people and makes them feel good. Just a great person, by the size of things. Um, amazing, amazing person. She doesn't do many interviews, she doesn't do many things, she hates it all, but she hates praise. I've never paid her, 
you know, I had to give her a gift after 2012. I had to, I remember after Beijing, I think I bought her a new telly for her front room and, and I, I bought her a nice watch after 2012 because she doesn't want anything. She just likes seeing people happy and then succeeding in their lives. Well, she certainly helped you get back on track at that point, didn't she? You had your first baby as well. You won the London Marathon for the first time. Your confidence presumably rebuilt quite a lot by the time Athens came around, 2004. Bronze in the 200, silver in the 100. When you're experiencing those events, was your joy kind of disproportionate, Dave, because you you won those medals almost despite what you'd been through to that point? I remember picking the phone up, I think it was January of 2002. I said, all right, Jen, I, I just need some help. So she said, right, what do you want? I said, look, I just want to get to Athens. I just want to represent Great Britain again. I, I want to have that feeling of putting that GB vest on, looking at the badge, seeing the kit, getting that buzz again that I've missed. And she got me fit for London, and I won London Marathon in 2002. That was probably the best buzz that I've ever had in my life. And then you're always chasing that buzz. It's a bit like drugs. You chase that first buzz all the time, and that's probably why I'm still here now, because I'm still chasing that first that buzz that I got when I won that won that marathon. And I just knew then that I did the right call coming back into the sport. I needed discipline in my life. I needed guidance as well, because I had nothing. And And then going to Athens was truly amazing. Um, and obviously that led to, the, to that success there. But maybe did Athens also kind of renew your desire, your quest for, for gold? When I come out of Athens, I said to Jen, I want world records. I want to be the best wheelchair racer that's ever wheeled on this planet. The best wheelchair racer from all the distances. And she said, OK, let's do it. And then she, I remember she'd done an interview and she said she didn't know what to do. She was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? Like... He wants this and he wants that, but and that's what we aim for now, and that, and that was the next thing. My life was a little bit easier because we got a new team manager, and she was an ex wheelchair racing coach from Australia. She pretty much opened the book and said, "What do you want to do?" She said, "Look, you're funded for sprinting, but what do you want to do?" I said, "Look, I want to do eight, fifteen, maybe a five now and then." And she said, "Okay, we're still." put you down a sprint, but you still have to do them and do a couple of them. So I said, all right. So as soon as I changed my training and, and started mixing in middle distance, my sprinting got better. So then that's when I broke the world records for the, the four, the two, and the 15. That was the crazy 2006 year where you were destroying everything and everybody in your pathway. Yeah. And then in the build-up to Beijing, Dave, there were more problems, weren't there? I mean, you split up with your girlfriend, your parents' 30-year marriage came to an end, and you had glandular fever, which, as I was remembering this the other day, I could barely believe it. Somehow you pulled out gold medals in the 800 and the 1500 in Beijing whilst suffering from glandular fever. It's extraordinary, that. I wanted to do the marathon, and then I had Beijing. So I got fit for the marathon, but I kept getting ill, like little coughs and colds, and, and, and I couldn't work it out. And obviously I still had it in my system, and I remember doing the London Marathon, winning it that year, and then having two weeks off because I couldn't do anything. That was the way it went going into Beijing. It was stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. And we worked out 
roughly that I could train quite hard for about eight weeks, ten weeks, and then I'd crash. And then when I got to Hong Kong, felt great, felt all right. I thought, well, maybe it's gone. Maybe I feel all right. And then literally, I remember training in Hong Kong and I was at world record pace for 400. And then when I got to Beijing, I think because I had another flight, so it was more stressful because I was petrified who he was flying with and what airline and, and stuff like that. And, and literally in Beijing, I, I just, I wasn't myself. And and then I did my first couple of races and I said to Noel at the time, I don't feel right, can't sleep properly. Just feel exhausted. Even with warm-up, I couldn't even warm up. And then they they figured out my eye levels were were seriously low, so they said, no wonder why. I, I entered five events, and in my head, I, I was, because of the year before I had, if I didn't get ill, I think I would have won five medals. Golds. As it was, just the two. Only the two. But having had all of those obstacles to overcome, Dave, I mean, can you describe the joy that you would have experienced after that, particularly because a number of amazing things happened, didn't they? Um, starting with an upgrade on the flight home, even yeah. if you hate yeah. flying, that would yeah. have been a good thing. And then a massive reception, wasn't there, at the estate that you lived on? You know, yeah. all the kids were checking out your medals and all the rest yeah. of it. I think it was Tessa Dow that gave me her seat. She swapped seats with me. I was in business class on the way back and I was quite hungover, to be honest. So I was leaning like that on the thing. You learned that? Yeah, I think so. Well, I was the last one to come in the, the village. I was <laughs> Of were, everyone? Yeah. Amazing. They were ringing me and, and going, where are you? I was like, I don't know, I'm in China somewhere. But I couldn't. <laughs> Even the taxi driver, I was like, where? Like the village. I'm like, what village? No. So it's lucky I had my uh, thing on from the... Your accreditation. Accreditation. And I literally saw it on the back in Chinese. I went there. And he went, oh, yeah. So literally, it was around the corner. To the cabbie. Yeah, so I literally went into the village and everyone had been dressed and they went, yeah, he's here. Everyone was panicking because I, I wasn't bothered where I was going. I, you know, I was so tired and hung over that I could have slept anywhere. We went left even more and I thought, all right, where are we going? And went to A1, so I was in the first seat and I slept the whole way and I remember someone from British Athletics said, you need to get changed because you're going to have interview after interview after interview after interview and I remember going in that toilet and and looking at myself oh my god how am I gonna do this my eyes were bright red my hair was everywhere I just felt like I needed a shower and stuff like that (laughs) and I had to go and sit at Heathrow doing the interview I just thought I can't I can't even keep my eyes open but I tried my best and then going back to the estate my mum said "Um, there's thousands of people here I was like what what for so you just won like two golds and silver and a bronze. You need to, you know, there's banners up everywhere. I was like, Mum, I can like, I can barely speak. So I literally went in quickly, washed my hair, quick shower, and my brother Alan had just was on the final stages of emigrating to Australia. So he was still here. His family had already gone, and I remember seeing him. And you know, he's 18 years older than me. And he picked me up and gave me a big cuddle and a bear hug, and I said, "You've done it. You won your, you know, your first gold medals." And yeah, there was thousands of kids. So I had to go in the sports hall and do a speech and talk to everyone. And yeah, that was that was pretty pretty decent. So all eyes at that point, once you'd gone through the celebration process, were on London. 
weren't they? You'd watch the able-bodied athletes, uh, the warm-up act as they were built by Channel 4, and the the powerful emotional ride, of course, that the whole of Britain was taken on that summer, Dave. The, the stage was set, the country was completely dizzy, wasn't it, with Olympic spirit, millions tuning in on telly, Paralympic venues rammed, and you had 10 days to effectively define your career. Was that a little bit overwhelming? Or was it just everything you'd built to? Yeah. People said, how did you deal with the pressure? I didn't feel I had pressure on me, to be honest. It was really weird. Like, I'd been successful before. and I just knew in training, if I got my head right, I was physically fit, I'd done everything I possibly could, then I've got a good chance of winning. I only wanted one gold medal in my home games. But in the back of my head, I wanted four because of, like I said, about Beijing. You know, if I wasn't ill, potentially I could have won five gold medals. So so it, I didn't feel the pressure. I I'd, I'd always used to say to myself, the general public, the only time they really watch me is in the London Marathon every year. And they expect me to win anyway because they don't really know about Paralympic sport and they just think, oh, he's won it before he's going to win. So I just said, well, just pretend it's the London Marathon, even though it's 20 million times better than than it's going to be for that one day. This is over 10 days. I kept having visions of winning the marathon of 2012. I kept having dreams that if people are going to remember your name, they're going to remember it on the last day of the whole of 2012. You'll be the guy that's going to, you know, who won last gold medal of 2012. And that would have been me. That was the big target. But could you just take us inside... The Olympic Stadium, Dave, your first final was the 5,000 metres, wasn't it? Again, given just how far you'd come and how far the Paralympics had come to that point, what was your reaction to that deafening wall of noise that greeted you? I remember um, lining up, well, actually going on the warm-up track for my first seat at the 5,000 metres, and obviously you, you still have these doubts in your head, is there going to be crowd? Is it fake noise? You know, because you, you, you can hear it from the village, but and you see it on telly, but you still just don't believe it until you're in the stadium yourself. And me and Jen was talking about the race plan. She said, "Don't take the front." I said, "All right." But I remember going up through the call room, final call, and you go over the bridge. There was a bridge you had to go over, and then I was paranoid I might get a puncture, and that was in my head. And so then we went under the tunnel, and we was under the stadium, and there was like a hole, really where you could see the stadium and the top tier was packed. I don't know, something come over me that I wanted to cry, I wanted to, I was just overwhelmed that we've put something on very, very special here. And do you know how nice it was to, because <laughs> athletes moan a lot, they moan about everything, food, travel, whatever, and to go in a Paralympic village, obviously because you're British, everyone's going to come and moan at you because they think it's your fault. So not have... No one moaned. Not one person. Not one person moaned about the games. Even the weather was good. You know? It was. It was <laughs> remarkably, yeah. For that 10 days, the weather was great. But going into that stadium and hearing that for the first time, it blew my mind. It really made your, your heart swell. Yeah, I just thought, I've got to do it for these lot that have come out, spent their money. Not just to come see Paralympians, they've come to see world-class athletes. And... Usually you can hear the races or you can hear the wheels or I couldn't hear nothing. It was deafening. And I remember <laughs> I really wanted to go on the front because I wanted to hear the reaction of the crowd. 
and I did. I didn't know what I was going to say to Jenny after, but I literally did a lap on the front because I wanted to hear that roar. To really? See that's it, why you did that? That's why I did it. And I went on the front and that the noise level just went up to another. Yeah, it, it was just... And at that point, did you feel like superhuman almost? You know, with that noise been backing behind you I felt, and you in the prime of your life? Yeah, I didn't feel I was superhuman. I felt like I had the whole country behind me. Not like a pressure where, oh, I'm scared if I don't win, are they going to hate me? I knew that they're whatever happens, you. yeah, it, they'll back me. If I come second, last, whatever, you know, but they just wanted a Brit to do well. That's a very happy place, isn't it? Uh, it was amazing. And then the, the, the final was even the noise level was, it's, it's just really hard to explain. I, if you was a blind athlete there, a lot of blind athletes would know where the finish was because usually the, the most noise would be at the finishing line, right? But there, you wouldn't know if you closed your eyes going around the track because the noise followed you around. And I remember lining up in the, in the 5,000 metres, trying to not look at the crowd and then my emotions were going through the roof and I saw five of my friends in 80,000 people. I was just like, oh my God. And they're waving. I, I got to the start line I was trying to not well up and, and cry the emotion. So I knew I had to do it that day. Well, you rose to every challenge, didn't you? Gold in the 5,000, the 1,500 and, and two more to come at that stage as well. And that was when the, the werewolf theme really kicked in, wasn't it, Dave? I mean, the the masks were out, yeah. the, the song was there. I mean, again, you were, you were part of the whole sort of Usain Bolt had his lightning, Mo Farah had his, had his Mobot and, yeah. and you had the werewolf. That must have been, that whole, everything about that must have just been very joyful. It was quite surreal and... I remember going, when we were staying in the Paralympic Village, I was going into the GB house, and every day I was going in there, they were running out of space to put up the, the articles that papers have written about how great we are and what fantastic games it's been. And just to see that give me joy every day, because they run out of room, they were putting it on the ceiling because they just had no space. It was from, from front to back. I just felt proud to be British. It was all positive and it was it was so good to read and you couldn't take your eyes off the papers or social media or or the you know, T V channels and the news channels just talking about Paralympic sport. It was the probably the best time of my life. Could you believe as well the way everybody had taken you to their hearts? Yeah, like the werewolf thing. It had come around a few years before that. Rick Edwards, T V presenter, we was doing a little show for Channel Four, trying to prove to people that you can't just jump in a wheelchair and become the next day we um, So I was racing people over 100 metres and he was giving them all nicknames, like there was a bodybuilder and he gave him the unit and there was a lifeguard. And so he gave them all nicknames and he said, mm, I'm going to call you the werewolf. And that's where it come from. But it didn't stay until someone said in the stadium and then it just sort of went crazy. Yeah, especially when people were wearing masks and then, you know, on the final day of the marathon, I think the sun printed out a a mask that you could cut out and wear on a day. So everyone on the course had a mask on. It was quite, yeah, it was quite baffling really at the time. Have you got one of those? No, I haven't. You should have one of them. Yeah, I should keep one. <laughs> amazing, amazing stories. And of course, the remarkable thriller Thursday that, that, that followed mm -hmm. those first two finals for you, the flood of British goals that came pouring in. And your 800 sat within that, didn't it? And, and significantly... 
your mum and dad were both there yeah for that I, I can't imagine the emotion of that moment being able to celebrate with them that day yeah it was um that was probably my toughest because by the time it got to the 800 i was shattered by them because the emotions you know sometimes i weren't getting back to my room till one two o'clock in the morning because i was having drug tests and Sometimes it takes ages if you're dehydrated or you might have to do a second test because of everything else. So, you know, you can train for every distance and every race, but you can't train for the emotions. You can't train for 80,000 people screaming your name and wanting you to do well. So I'm glad it was the 800 and not the 5,000 metres. <laughs> I'm glad it went down for a bit. And I was looking at the greats of the Olympians, you know, all the swimmers that have won epic amount of gold medals. And when you see them all lined up, you don't see a silver or a bronze. So that was in my head. I was like, right, if I need to get this clean sweep, these are the people I need to beat today. Literally, that final bend, I've never pushed any quicker in my life. And I literally was going around after I've won. I was trying to do my thing up. I don't know why, because it come undone and it was just annoying me. So I was trying to do it up. And I spotted them. I was like, oh, my God, it's mum and dad. And it was the first time I ever seen my dad cry. Ever. Really? Yeah. I was just like welling up and and I felt like I'd achieved everything then. And then it clicked when I'm sitting at the sideline because they said, um, can you do some interviews? And I said, no, can I just watch Johnny's race because Johnny's racing next. And I knew Hannah had done well before that. And then Dan Greaves was throwing in discus and going for gold as well. So I was just sitting there and then it clicked and I went, oh my God, I've got the marathon in three days or two days. See, back in that zone again. I thought, let's just forget about that for a minute and, and, and just concentrate on, on Johnny and make sure Johnny does well. And, and that 20 minutes was just amazing feeling to hear him turn around and shush the crowd and tell him to be quiet because he's concentrating on that race. As a young lad as well. He was really, I think it was 19, was he, at the time? I think so, yeah. Something like that. Um, to have that balls, really, to, to do that was just truly amazing. The marathon obviously was the, the crowning glory for you. You've spoken about how important it was to you before you actually got to it. A, it must have taken a, a kind of superhuman physical effort. But do you remember what that was like when you crossed the line and you were the final gold medal winner of the entire Games and then the crazy scenes from the Heroes Parade, which you were part of as well? I mean, that the, the appreciation of hundreds of thousands of people mixed in significantly with the Olympians as well. How did that feel to you? Um, it, it must have been it must have been pretty joyous. That marathon was one of the toughest races I've ever done because mentally I, I was just drained. And it was the, the first time after my 800, I didn't sleep. All week I, I managed to make myself go to sleep after each race. Even though I had probably four or five hours sleep, if that, because I'd get up for the next qualifier. And I remember doing the the first little loop and I spotted probably 50, 60 people from my estate, like my friends, Digger, uh, John Delaney. And he's a big lad and I could just see his, he's quite big and I could just see him and I thought, God, they've got all masks on and they're, you know, they've got beers in their hand and they're... I was like, oh my God, everyone's here. Because they didn't have the chance to go to the stadium because they couldn't get tickets. So this was the only chance they could celebrate what I'd done. And and they kept spurring me on every time I went past. So, And then all of a sudden I just had a meltdown. 
in the race. I just, you know, I kept seeing people with masks on and I just thought, I can't do this. I literally, split second, I, f I felt like I needed to just pull over because I felt I had no energy. I was behind a couple of Japanese athletes and I just focused on their back wheels for about five minutes. And every time there was a break, I'd cover the break. This is what I'd, I've, I've taught myself, cover it, every break, it doesn't matter who does it, cover the break. So I'd cover the break, could be anyone. Make sure you're in that top three all the time. And that's what we did. And then me, Kurt and Marcel broke away. Them two were teaming up on me and it really pissed me off a little bit. So I remember turning around at Tower Bridge for the last time and there was a slight downhill and I, I just sprinted and went. I made a massive gap. I should have carried it on to the finish, but I didn't want to. So I waited for them to catch me up and I could see they'd gone. You know, Kurt's lips were blue. Marcel, I could tell he, he was heavily breathing. And I thought, I've got this in the bag now. I just need to sit and wait. Because I knew they wouldn't have another sprint in me and I knew I did. And I waited till the final bend where all my friends were. And I knew with the work we've been doing, that I had a good 800 metres in me. And to this day, I looked at my clock at the finish and I hit like nearly 25 mile an hour and I've never hit that speed since, really, on a flat race. Do the gold medals feel different, Dave? I mean, to a regular mortal, could you explain, is there more joy at gold medal number one or is, does each one get better than the last? Yeah, I change my mind all the time. Obviously, the, the, the four gold medals mean more to me than, than the gold medals I got in Beijing. Because of the scenario, because it was because your Because I was Olympics. British, I was from London. You know, I trained my life for that, that 10 days. You know, everything went right. That whole year was great. I won the London Marathon that year as well. So everything was just falling into place. That was my time. I, I believe that was my time to shine on the world stage at Paralympics. I always change my mind with the London medals. I always think my first one was probably my best because if I didn't win that, I don't think I would have won or I don't think I would have gone on a roll. So I always say that the first one was most important, but I kept dreaming about winning that marathon. It's because the other races didn't believe that I could win on the track and win on the road because Beijing, I pulled out the marathon because I just, I glanced and I couldn't do anything. And, you know, you hear people saying, oh, He's only a track racer. He wins the London Marathon every year. That's it. He trains for that race. And so I, it was more to prove to the other racers that I can do it as well. Can I ask you just to encapsulate what you felt as the celebrations from London 2012 took place? Because it was the first time, certainly seemed to be the first time here in this country that the Paralympics were, were taken for what they are, which is the most incredible illustration of sporting excellence regardless of able-bodied disabled bodies it seemed to be a bit of a watershed did you feel that in those celebrations subsequently it was the first time that i felt like i was a, an athlete not a disabled athlete or look at that disabled athlete or look at that poor athlete i felt it was on the bracket of jess ennis you know and mo farah and all the greats and going to the parade and having it together and, and actually being on the same back of a lorry with Jess and she comes straight up to me. I've I met her before, but in different circumstances, but she was so joyful and happy for what we had done and what we achieved. And she said to me, you know, you're my 
mum's second favourite athlete. Obviously, I'm a first, but she, you know, she couldn't stop watching you, and you, you're just an inspiration to the whole country. I'd never ever seen London or anything like that. You know, people hanging out of windows, signs, and saying the werewolf is the best ever, and not the best person in the wheelchair. You know, it's just little things like that. The best athlete we've ever seen, and people shouting your name, and it took hours to get to outside Buckingham Palace because I don't think they expected that millions of people coming out. I don't think they cared about their job at that time. Obviously, the bosses said, no, just go and enjoy. And they were hanging out of windows and climbing on bus shelters to shake our hands. And it was just, yeah, truly mind-blowing. And I've Googled the pictures now, and when you see it, it's just, yeah, mind-blowing. Well, Dave, there aren't too many careers like yours you've provided so much entertainment so much joy inspiration to so many people over a huge number of years of course you've got the the internationally acclaimed Weir Archer Academy now as well developing the the David Weirs of the future uh, hopefully and of course you've played such a key role haven't you in putting Paralympic sport on the map and in the public consciousness so thank you for that in itself such a powerful legacy but thank you as well for for being here today and every good wish for what happens next thank you very much You've been listening to Running on Emotion with me, Alistair Eakin, an Eakin Media production for Audi. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe, like and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our hashtag is Running on Emotion and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Sound is by Norman Goodman and the series producer is Andrew Sampson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>